over a span of 2,000 years, 40 authors on three different continents and in three different languages penned 66 books, all of which were supernaturally inspired and intricately designed as God's revelation to man. The spoken word of God, living and active, sharper than a two-edged sword, recorded and bound just for us. Join us on a journey from Genesis to Revelation, all 66 books, the big book, cover to cover. This is Michael Easley in Context. Well, it is a delight to have Dr. John, a.k.a. Jack Collins, on the podcast today. Dr. Collins teaches at Covenant Theological Seminary, and prior to coming to Covenant in 1993, he was a church planter in Spokane, Washington. That had to be kind of a hard place to leave. Spokane's beautiful. It is beautiful, and I do miss it. Yeah, a little different than the Golden Arch. His background also includes advanced studies in linguistics and biblical languages. These guys always intimidate me. And practical experience in Bible study and discipleship ministry. He's written extensively on biblical languages, interpretation, on science, and the Christian faith. He has received grants from the John Templeton Foundation, from the Center for Science and Culture, for his work in science and faith. He is author of Did Adam and Eve really exist? Who were they? And why should you care? Also, The God of Miracles, an exegetical examination of God's action in the world, science and faith, friends or foes, and Genesis, the first four chapters, a linguistic, literary, and theological commentary. He is a professor of Old Testament chair on the translation committee of the ESV and an Old Testament editor for the ESV Study Bible. He earned his Ph.D. at the School of Archaeology and Oriental Studies in Liverpool. That had to be, I mean, intellectually a challenge, but that had to be a phenomenal experience. It was. In the British system, your Ph.D. is time spent on the thesis research and with your advisor. My advisor was Alan Millard, whom I esteem highly. And he's to blame for everything that I've done since then. <laughs> yeah, I tell my professors, if it's good, you can take credit. If it's bad, you get the blame. <laughs> that's, that's right. <laughs> he also earned his Master of Divinity at the Faith Evangelical Lutheran Seminary in Tacoma, a Master of Computer Science and Engineering. This is where I get intimidated at MIT in Cambridge and his Bachelor of Science in the same institution at MIT in Cambridge. So all that to say, Dr. John Collins, a.k.a. Jack, thanks again for joining us on the broadcast. It's greatly appreciated. It's a pleasure to be with you. So we want to jump right into this. You are obviously your street creds, your CV. Tell us a lot about you with advanced knowledge in Greek and Hebrew and poetic languages, wisdom literature, and so forth. I want to get some primarily of your insights on Habakkuk and take a stab at this little tiny minor prophet book, 56 verses as we count them. So start with, you know, Jack's assessment of the book, a little bit about the background, the audience, and then I'll interrupt you as appropriately. <laughs> sure. 
Sure. Well, the place to start just before tackling a particular book of the prophets is to make sure we are on the same page when we're thinking about what a prophet is and what he does. And fundamentally, a prophet is a spokesman for God to his people. That's set up in Deuteronomy 18, where the role of the prophet is established, and he's going to be like Moses in some ways and unlike Moses in other ways. So that's what he's to do, is to be a spokesperson, spokesman, I guess I can say, because all the writing prophets that we have were men. And the idea that the basic task that they're going to do is to bring to bear the story of Israel's call, the Israel's history with the Lord, to bear on the circumstances of their immediate audience, but also with a view towards the future of the story. So the prophets are very oriented towards this story. The God who made the world and sent the great flood, who called Abraham to be his friend and promised the land to Abraham, then called Israel out of Egypt and gave them the covenant to Sinai, you know, is talking about all these events in their past with a view towards instructing them in their present duty, especially bringing them up short, because usually, especially before the time of the exile, the prophets are critical of the people. So that's what a prophet is and what he does. And then the second thing to be aware of is just history. And we don't want to talk about prophets to Israel as such, because after the reign of Solomon, the son of David, the kingdom was divided into the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. So we have three prophets who were prophets to the specifically spokesmen for God to the northern kingdom, Amos, Hosea, and Jonah. And then the rest of them are speaking to the southern kingdom and then to the southern kingdom, to Judah after it's restored, after it's exile. So we just have to keep all those things in perspective. And then there's sort of the international scene. And after the year 745 BC, the Assyrians are putting pressure on the people in the western part of the Middle East, what we would think of as the eastern coastal area of the Mediterranean, like Lebanon, Israel, Judah, Syria, and so forth. And so after 745, the Assyrians are the imperial overlords. So both Israel and then Judah become vassals to the Assyrian kingdom. And that's, of course, a challenge because the whole purpose of Israel is to be the means by which the light goes to the rest of the world. That's what the Lord said to Abram when he called him, in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. And so the prophets are often speaking to the people about how their unfaithfulness is getting in the way of the Lord bringing his light to the rest of the world. And that's part of the setting for Habakkuk. And Habakkuk is addressing the question, how can Judah be the vehicle of God's light Mm. to the rest of the world when they're under the thumb of the Assyrians? And so the Lord says, well, I have a plan, and my plan is to replace the Assyrians with the Babylonians. And Habakkuk's going to reply with, excuse me, how is that a solution? You know, when you think about what the Babylonians want, and then the Lord goes on to explain that he will see to it that all oppressors of his people will be judged so that the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord. I mean, that's the ultimate goal of the story. And so Habakkuk then comes in in this particular setting where Judah is under the thumb of the Assyrians and the Babylonians haven't really become a big player yet. They don't become a big player until sometime after 
about 620 or so. And so this would likely be before 620 BC. The form of the book of Habakkuk is he addresses these questions to the Lord. The Lord answers the question. Habakkuk then has a redirect and the Lord comes back to him. And then we, the audience, we get to listen in on this conversation. What we have to recognize is that when we're reading this, we shouldn't be thinking about so much what's happening to Habakkuk as to what is the Lord saying about his plan for his people. I had outlined the book real simply with a complaint, reply, complaint, reply, Mm -hmm. and then Habakkuk's prayer. And it just seems to be, it's a combination, almost like a little bit of a psalm and a lament complaint. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, we had this very interesting instruction at the end of it, which we can talk about, you know, dating and whatnot. It's for the choir director, Mm -hmm. which is an unusual, I don't think we have any other prophecy or, I mean, we have songs within prophets, but we don't have an injunction. Okay, now I want you to sing about this. Yeah, that's right. Now, in my opinion, your outline is perfect because it agrees entirely with how I would outline it. So I feel good already. And uh, and yes, the third chapter is sort of guiding the people in their response to the complaint and the reply, the complaint, and then the long reply, which is most of chapter two. Right. And then chapter three is not simply Habakkuk's response, but as you noticed, by attaching that little bit, sending it to the choir master, you're really inviting the whole population of Judah to join in in this response. Which is interesting in a prophetic realm, because as you so well pointed out, you know, I understand the context of history, the people groups, I call them the eavesdroppers. On the one hand, you've got, let's say, Israel in the north or Judah in the south, but you've got the eavesdroppers, those, you know, neighboring people groups who in Mm -hmm. some way, shape or form would hear these stories. But the end of this one is saying about this. It's Mm -hmm. an extraordinary difference, I would say. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think one of the things that we derive from that is that when we reflect on the story as the prophets have us do, you know, it's hard to see when you're looking just at your little slice of the story, when you're in the moment, where is this going? How did we get here? Where is this going? And so forth. And now if you're a faithful Israelite, you're supposed to know that this story is going to a wonderful place where the Gentiles get the light. But if you're looking at just your slice of the story, you're thinking, how in the world are we ever going to get there? And so the Lord's replies to Habakkuk's questions are really his assurance that, yes, we will get there. And even these powerful empires will not thwart that overall purpose. And so if you take that to heart, then you receive this guidance in confidence, confidence that is a realistic confidence that, you know, we could go through this phase where the fig tree doesn't blossom and so forth. Nevertheless, because I have this assurance about the story, I can rejoice along with my fellow members of the people of God. One of the things I've asked many of our guests who, you know, scholars in their field and scholars in different books is when it's hard for us contextually to understand, I mean, human nature perhaps is not that much different than the ancients, but we've got these global superpowers is the way I explain them, mm-hmm. whether it's Babylonians or the Assyrians or the Egyptians breathing down Israel's neck. We've got mm-hmm. this religious political crisis going on where we have the cadence, you know, the kings that do evil in the sight of the Lord and so forth. Jehoiakim, if I have my history correct, is the one who reigns 11 years in this backdrop. If that's, I mean, you can correct me if I'm wrong there. How did they hear these messages that, for all intents and purposes, they were not going to see 
a positive mm-hmm. end to this story in their lifetime. Yeah. Well, just in terms of which king of Judah is relevant, that's hard to say because the book itself doesn't give us any guidance. Its main guidance is that it's from the era in which the Babylonians don't seem like they're the greatest threat in the world to the Assyrian power, which would put it sometime before 620 or so, which would maybe have somebody like Josiah as the king of Judah. Josiah was actually the last faithful king of Judah, and so he was attentive, but the generality of the population were not. This is one of the things that really distinguishes the prophets before the exile, when the Babylonians destroy Jerusalem in 587. And then after 539, the Persians, who have taken over from the Babylonians, allow the Judeans to return and rebuild Jerusalem and the areas around it as sort of a restored Judah. And the prophets after the exile, Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi, and perhaps Joel, nobody really knows the answer to that, those prophets actually have people listen to them. The prophet Haggai tells people to get back to work, and by golly, they all get back to work. So they really listen. Before the exile, they mostly don't. And so it's a very bleak outlook for anybody called to be a prophet. The prophet Jeremiah gives us a lot of you know, it gives us a window into his soul as we see what it's like for him to be not listened to. So just coming back to your question, how did they hear it? A lot of them didn't pay attention. It's interesting that Habakkuk nevertheless talks about the person of faith in Habakkuk 2, the famous verse. He says in 2.3, for still the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end. It will not lie. So it's going to take its time. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. Behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him, but the righteous shall live by his faith. It's always recognized in the Hebrew Bible. I think it's true in the New Testament as well, but that's controversial. But it's always recognized that you have the covenant made with the people. And so that marks out everybody who's born in Israelite, circumcised, and so forth as a member of the people. But Not every member of the people embraces the covenant from the heart. Not every member of the people believes the Lord's words and trusts in his grace and so forth. And so what you often see in the prophets is this notion of there is a group that's the faithful. Usually in the prophets, they're a minority and they don't have much influence on the overall corporate and social life of the people. But The prophets are calling on them to remain faithful. Sometimes the word used for them is the remnant. They're the ones who will remain after the judgment, and they'll be the nucleus of God's fresh start on his people, which is what happens after the exile. So your question, how did the people hear it? Well, generally they didn't. Mm. And, you know, we see that laid out very explicitly in Jeremiah, who would be, if my guess on the date of Habakkuk is right. Jeremiah is just a little bit after the time of Habakkuk or a near contemporary. And so what we're seeing is that mostly they didn't listen, but a few did. And those few who did were the ones who survived the great judgment of 587. When I read through Minor Prophets again and again and again, I'm always looking for, you know, again, what was that context? And again, you sketched this out in your opening remarks. The challenge, I think, for most, you know, modern day Christians is how do we bridge that contextual gap? Mm-hmm. How do we apply it? What's 
fair to apply. I'm one of those that wants to be careful not to over-principalize because then we just create a new set of laws, right? But we can certainly make observations and applications from this story. I mean, there's so many things that strike me in this short record, but the woes, of course, I forget which commentary it was. It's not new with me, but they talked about a taunt song that Uh this is a dirge taunt with these five Mm -hmm. woes that are going to come upon Babylon. And you read that and go, goodness, would we ever hear that kind of language in, Mm -hmm. you know, modern day evangelical, fundamental, Bible-believing Christians today? Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think your instincts are right. You know, we want to figure out how do we bridge from the prophet's own context to our own without sort of over-principalizing, as you say. And and there's a couple of things. First of all, is that the prophet is speaking about the story. And it's a story in which you and I, here in 2020, are now participants. We're beneficiaries of the story. I mean, it's we're sort of riding this wave that's all behind us. And so all these things have been governed by God's providence to bring us to where we are right now. So we're beneficiaries. We're also players in the story. That is to say, we get to play a part in where the story goes from here. The Lord will ensure that the story gets to its final and glorious conclusion, and we get the privilege of participating in that. So, I mean, that's fundamental to the prophets. Now, some of the other prophets, it doesn't come through as much in Habakkuk, speak about, say, the social life of Israel or Judah the exploitation of the poor or the syncretistic worship. And, you know, they're not exclusively worshiping the Lord, but they're bringing in worship of other deities and so forth. So those would show up in other prophets. And the image I use, it's now a dated image because nobody knows what a photographic negative is anymore. It's sort of like, look at what the prophet is describing and then do the opposite would be the simplest way of putting it. So a prophet like Amos or Micah will be speaking a lot of those things. Mm -hmm. But Habakkuk is mostly addressing the story, and he's mostly addressing the possibility that the people would lose heart. In the United States, you know, we complain a lot about marginalization and so forth. But what we call persecution is fairly mild compared to, say, what our brothers and sisters would face, say, in Saudi Arabia or in mainland China, or think of the Soviet Union during the height of its power. And it would have been easy for the faithful in settings like that to suppose, you know what, there's no way that this awesome power can be overcome. And the Lord's assurance in Habakkuk is, yes, there is a way, Mm. not humanly possible, but in terms of my providential oversight of things, I'll see to it that they fail and that the people of God will remain. So what that means is that we mustn't lose heart when we feel oppressed by those who would try to squelch our faith. We mustn't lose heart. We mustn't give in to the temptation to give up and just to assimilate. You know, you can't beat them, so you might as well join them. (laughs) And so those are the standing temptations for the people of Judah, who were just a tiny minority people in these vast empires. And there's always Judeans who are thinking, well, how do I get ahead? They've always got their eye for the main chance. Okay, I'm going to get a job with the imperial power. And if that means oppressing my fellow Judeans, well, that's the price of my success. Yeah. And It would be easy to become bitter, to lose faith, and so forth. So a work like Habakkuk is helping people not to lose their faith. And that's why 
Habakkuk 2.4, the one who trusts in the Lord, the one who uh, the righteous shall live by his faith. The faith there is trust that the Lord really does have the story in hand and really will preserve his people, even when you have these terrible oppressors. And that's the taunt song, if, if you like, the five woes in chapter two of Habakkuk. You know, you find yourself wondering, okay, so is that about the Assyrians or the Babylonians? Right. And the answer to that is yes. yes. <laughs> um, and really, it's sort of all oppressors. I use the image of the Soviet Union, terrifying power for the 70 years of its existence, but now it's gone. And other oppressors, Nazi Germany, they're gone as well. And, and you can just go down the list. There are present oppressors as well, but we need to be confident that they will not succeed. Now, I suppose you and I need to be prepared for should we ever face such oppression, but one of the things that we can do is to pray in sympathy with our brothers and sisters in other parts of the world who are faced with oppression like this in some of the Islamic countries or a very dictatorial country like North Korea or mainland China, and pray that they would not lose heart, but that they would keep their faith. Um, so that is one of the practical ways in which the book of Habakkuk speaks to us. And plus, you know, it's, how do I put this? I'm old enough to have seen, you know, the waves of optimism and pessimism of committed evangelical Christians in the United States, you know, as we have, we got to the point where we started tying our optimism and pessimism to which political party was in power and whether they were pursuing the policies that we care about. Now, I care about a lot of policies very intensely, but even we, we can be tempted to be pessimistic because we're just looking at the very short term and we're looking at our position within our society and so forth. And what we have to be doing is thinking about the big picture of the Lord's overarching story, getting to its glorious conclusion where the earth is filled with the knowledge of the Lord. As Habakkuk says, the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. That was the original creational intention of the world is that it would be a sanctuary. And when something is filled with the glory of the Lord, that means it's a sanctuary. So the Lord will succeed. And we too mustn't lose heart and we mustn't tie our optimism and pessimism to these kind of very visible circumstances, much as we might lament them or rejoice in them, they're not the source of our optimism. Well, and I have this running theory that the West as a, and I speak primarily of the United States, you know, we have such a poor historical knowledge base on our own history, much less global history. So we're so in the now instantaneous, you know, consumerism, materialism drives us far more than a long view of God's salvation plan and salvific history. And it's striking this, you know, we're about the same age, I suggest, but the longer I live, the worse it seems to get. Perhaps everyone feels that way when they get older, but it just seems like our we're vacant on our biblical, theological, historical understandings. When I taught through this book, Dr. Collins, I came up with just four kind of observations last, you know, lessons. And one of them, it's so basic, but I don't think we believe it, is that God is eternal and immovable. And, mm -hmm. you know, we live in such a construct, I call it if-then theology. If I do this, then my life will be this way. And the subtext is, if I live this way, then God will, you know, bless me that way, as mm -hmm. opposed to 
your experience is not your theological plumb line. You know, the truth of Scripture is your plumb line, and your experience really is a poor teacher most of the time. I think that's often the case. You know, what did I do to bring this about is, I mean, there are times when that's a constructive question, but a lot of the time, the only answer is it's a whole lot more complicated than that. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I tell people, you know, when you get in trouble or some bad Mm -hmm. thing happens or cancer or your children break your heart, it's a good place to begin. You know, Lord, am I living in sin? Is there something in my Mm -hmm. life I need to confess and address? But then you go forward, you know, you don't park there and looking for some, you know, if-then theology. If I do this, then God will right. restore my fortunes or make my children love me or whatever. Another one based on chapter 2, verse 1, and I love this phrase where he says, I will stand on my guard post and station mm-hmm. myself on the rampart. I will keep watch to see what he will speak to me and how I may reply when I'm reproved. You don't Mm -hmm. see that one taught very often. (laughs) You know, I'm going to watch, but God may well be giving me a reproving judgment here. And so my job is to stand guard, take my stand, and keep watch for what God's doing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that's right. Again, think of mainland China. They're trying very hard to suppress faithful Christianity and they're not succeeding at that, and they won't succeed. You know, whatever success they it appears that they're having will just be short-term. We can be confident that the Lord's purposes will outlast the purposes of the government of mainland China. The Lord's purposes will outlast the machinations of those who would seek in our own culture to thwart us. I mean, we don't have to live in fear and in trepidation, much as we might be concerned about things. Give me some of your high-level observations, or if we can call them lessons. I mean, you've alluded to a couple of them, but other Mm -hmm. ones that you might say for the modern-day believer. Well, I've mentioned Habakkuk 2.4, the righteous will live by his faith, and certainly that's cited in the New Testament three times. And it's in the context of Habakkuk, that faith has to do with confidence that the Lord is, in fact, providentially directing the world's story to its glorious conclusion. So when we think about faith in New Testament terms, we ought to have this much more fully story-oriented version of faith. It's not simply about me. It's about me being a member of this people that God is working with through history. And that gives me a place in this large story. You know, the story didn't start the day I was born. The story preceded me by many, many centuries. And so I enter into it and I get to play a part in it. And that does two things. One is it kind of sort of puts me in my place if I'm getting too big for my britches and so forth. Okay, it's the story isn't about me. But on the other hand, it also dignifies me. God doesn't have to make me small in order for him to be big. In fact, God is so big that he makes me big too that he makes me a member of this people that's participating in the story. So I can view myself and my fellow believers as dignified by their membership in this people and dignified by their place in the story, even though, I mean, I don't know what that place might be. For some people, it's just changing diapers. For other people, it's doing their work well. For other people, it's teaching the Bible and so forth. So each of us does different things. 
but those different things that we do are our participation in the story and that they have dignity simply because we are doing what God calls us to do. And so this prophet helps us then to view ourselves. We start off with, well, okay, I'm just a member of God's people. So it's not about me, but I'm a member of God's people. So I have this incredible position in the world. And as you were saying, I don't have to figure out all the whys and the wherefores. I don't have to necessarily know what it is I'm supposed to do next. Just do faithfully what I'm called to do. Mm -hmm. And God uses that. And I can do so in confidence without feeling this underlying fear or anxiety. Am I doing enough? Am I somehow missing the calling and so forth? No, I'm, I'm just being faithful in what God has given me to do. And that's what pleases the Lord. And that's what he's going to use to advance the story. Two verses I'd love you to expand on it, if you wouldn't mind. In chapter 2, verse 20, and this, I think, if I understand the argument of the book well, we've got the five woes. The last one in verse 19 is mocking mm-hmm. the idol, verse 18, technically. Yeah. And then mm-hmm. we make the contrast in verse 20, but the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth be silent before him, chapter 2, verse mm-hmm. 20. Just your, your, your yeah. thoughts on, you know, there's a lot of verses in the scripture that just kind of stop me in my tracks And Mm -hmm, that's when mm -hmm. I read and I go, you need to sit for a minute and shut up. Let all the earth be silent before him. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, you have these five woes in in chapter two. And in each case, these powerful imperial forces are going to come to an end. They have built their city on violence. They have robbed independence and treasures from other peoples and so forth. And they think they're so great, but they're going to come to an end. And in thinking they're so great, the last one dealing with the idol that's actually a man-made deity and and so forth. And then you get to this, but the Lord is in his holy temple. So, you know, when you see a verse about the Lord being in his temple, you know, we want to ask, well, are we talking about the temple, the heavenly temple or the earthly temple? And lots of times the answer is, why did you think that it was either or? It is true that by worshiping in the physical temple in Jerusalem, the people come into the presence of God and, as it were, by faith, enter into the heavenly worship. But I think the stress here, he's in his heavenly temple, and all the earth should keep silent before him because that's wherein our humanity is fulfilled, not by this turmoil, this roiling and violent activity that we've seen, but by keeping silent before him and listening to him. Because the ultimate end of the world in verse 14 is to be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord. And the way for that to happen is for people to be silent with respect to all their violence, all their idol worship, all their exploitation and so forth, to stop and listen. And what that says to us as believers is that when we gather for worship, we too are entering into this temple and Part of our job is to be silent. Of course, part of our job is to sing as well, but to listen. And so we can come into our own humble kind of worship, you know, whether we're worshiping in a Quonset hut or, you know, a magnificent cathedral, it's still pretty puny compared to the magnificent temple that the Lord inhabits in his heavenly dwelling. And through these portals, if you like, we're coming into that heavenly temple and uh, we can do so with awe. And the awe doesn't have to diminish our joy and our gladness. 
So the fulfillment of our humanity is then to cease all this activity that these various empires are engaging in and make ourselves silent before the Lord. And then last in chapter three, again, it just catches me, the last strophe of verse two, I'll read verses one and two, a prayer of Habakkuk, the -hmm. prophet, according to Shignoth, Lord, I've heard the report about you and I fear. And literally, we'd probably read that if we were using your Hebrew and scholarship and my Hebrew hack knowledge, it would be more the report about you, I fear. O Lord, revive your work in the midst of the years, in the midst of the years, make it known. And then here it is, in wrath, remember mercy. Mm-hmm. What a statement. Yeah. What is, I mean, you know, he knows it's yeah. coming, right? It's inevitable. Yeah. But yeah. he pleads for mercy nonetheless. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, I mean, if you think about the setting in the second half of the 7th century B.C. in Judah, perhaps we have Josiah as the king. It's hard to say. But what we have is mostly a people who are unfaithful and whose corporate life is dominated by unfaithfulness. You also have these alien powers, the imperial powers like Assyria and Babylonia, So they're also very attractive to the unfaithful within Judah. You know, I want to get on board that particular train. And so that the prophets, especially by this time, are viewing as it's almost inevitable at this point that Judah would have to be purged in a very severe way, purged of the unbelieving members. The image that the Apostle Paul uses in Romans 11 is the olive tree and the unbelieving branches are hacked off. Well, unfortunately, at this time in Judah, the vast majority of the branches are unbelieving, and they're going to be hacked off. And so that's a terrible judgment. Here, the prophet is giving us a good example to follow, that we would not want the full weight of divine judgment to fall on even the unbelieving branches. We'd like them actually to come to repentance, and we'd like that there be mercy shown to Judah, which is what's left of Israel, so that through Judah, God's purposes can be achieved, a chastened Judah and a purified Judah. So there the prophet is sort of setting us a good example. I mean, since this is a song that he would invite us to sing, we're identifying with this wish. It's easy to pray that God would let loose his wrath, whether on the unfaithful amongst the people of God or those who would oppress us. It's a little bit harder to pray that God would temper that wrath with mercy, not primarily to us, but to those people who might be recipients of that wrath. That's good for us to remember. Dr. John Jack Collins, what a delight to have you on the program. I appreciate your time. We'll have to get you back on the podcast sometime in the near future. All right, God bless you and opine for the days when you can go back to Spokane. (laughs) Indeed. (laughs) Thanks very much. God bless you too. And God bless your listeners. Thank you so much. Appreciate you. Michael Easley in Context is fully funded by our listeners. If you are a regular listener, would you consider giving a one-time or perhaps monthly donation to support our ministry? You can give at michaelincontext.com. In Context is edited, mixed, and mastered by Tim Hull, produced by Hannah Seymour, and music composed by Chad Gates. Thank you.